Our scripture passage this morning uh, is taken from uh, Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. Uh, if you've been with us the past few weeks, we know we've been talking a lot about joy, which really is uh, the main theme of the book of Philippians. Um, one of the things that we've seen is that uh, joy uh, is not something that is connected to our circumstances. Uh, happiness is often connected to our circumstances, but joy is something different. It's something that, that runs deeper. And so we can, in some ways, be sad or even discontent with our circumstances and yet still remain joyful. Um, but I don't know about you, but I know for me, joy sometimes is still very hard to come by. Uh, it's something that I struggle with. It's something that I uh, have challenges to find in my own heart. And I think that's why Paul opens up our passage uh, the way he does this morning. He says here at the very beginning, rejoice in the Lord. And we take that phrase very simply, but if you look at the Greek, there's something much more fuller to what Paul is saying in this command. Somebody translated it this way. I command you to be always making every effort to be rejoicing in the Lord. And so what Paul is commanding us to do is to pursue joy. And one of the things that we discover is as we pursue Jesus Christ, our Savior, we find at the same time that we are pursuing joy. So our passage is Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11. Hear God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us your way, that you would lead us on a level path. Teach us, O Lord, to follow your decrees, that we will keep them to the end. Give us understanding that we will keep your law and obey it with all our hearts. Through Christ our Lord, amen.
The way I want us to think about this passage this morning is to think about it as a contrast that Paul is setting up and then a response to that contrast. And really the contrast that he's making here is two types of confidence. One is confidence that is in the flesh and the other is confidence in Christ. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, For the past few years, uh, Sean and I uh, have been coaching a 9-10 baseball team uh, in the Roland Park Baseball League. Uh, We are right now in the middle of our playoffs, and uh, our team earlier this week had a thrilling win, and then yesterday we had a heartbreaking loss. Uh, It was a great season, but we're always sad uh, to see the season end. But that's not the end of of at least my coaching. Many of you know that uh, I also coach uh, uh, cross-country and track and field at the high school level, and then I've coached at the college level uh, almost 20 years at this point. And so I've been doing a lot of coaching over the years at kids of all sorts of different ages, and, and one of the things that I've learned over my years of coaching is that there really is one intangible Uh, that tends to set apart uh, good athletes from medium athletes or even mediocre athletes. One intangible that makes them different, and that intangible is often their confidence or their level of confidence. In fact, at the college level, we often talk to our uh, college athletes that that tend to kind of doubt their own athletic ability. We, we coach them in confidence. We tell them to, to take any sort of negative self-talk that they may feel and turn it around and make it positive or confident self-talk in order to help them perform well uh, in athletics. And I thought a lot about this uh, about a year ago when I read a book uh, by Alex Hutchinson called Endure. And he talks about this connection between the mind and the body. And if there's some way that we could hardwire the mind to feel more confident, will it wind up affecting the body and athletic performance? And one of the the instances he talked about was the story of Roger Bannister. If you've ever heard of Roger Bannister before, uh, in 1954, he was the first runner uh, to break the four-minute mile barrier. Nobody thought it could be done before, but he was the first runner to do that. And one of the things that Hutchinson notes is that after he did it, the next year, 37 other people did it. By within two years, 300 runners had broken the four-minute mile. And he says what the difference was, was they finally believed that it could be done. They were confident that that thing could be accomplished. And so we see confidence plays a big role in a lot of things. But it's not just true about sports, right? Uh, If you're in sales, what do they say? Walk into that sales appointment with confidence. Uh, ooze confidence as you enter into the working world. And so the same is true in sales. It's true in investments and banking, consulting, real estate. No matter what profession it is, confidence becomes really important. And if you're still in the dating world, they tell you to have good, that's good advice. Enter into first dates with all sorts of confidence. So really this sort of thing is everywhere. But the question becomes, what about when it comes to spiritual matters? Are we supposed to have confidence when it comes to our relationship with God? Or what is the role of confidence when it comes to our faith? 
And I think as we come to our passage this morning, Paul talks about really two ways to be confident when it comes to matters of faith. Uh, One of those ways really is a dead end. And the other way is the only true path to life. One of the things that Paul says, the dead end that Paul says when it comes to confidence is what he calls confidence in the flesh. And he talks about this confidence in the flesh in two different ways. The first way is is when he talks about these false teachers or these Judaizers that had entered into the church that was in Philippi. He says this in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, sometimes the translation doesn't come through, but, but I'll, I'll tell you this. When Paul's speaking here, this is pretty vicious of an attack. Uh, Paul is very angry. He's extremely frustrated, and he's not afraid to call out these false teachers that had entered into the church. And one of the things that you learn as you look at the epistles is that Paul was contending really with these false teachers at every church that he had ministered in and every church that he'd worked with. He calls them uh, dogs in this passage. Uh, and for all of you who are dog lovers, don't be offended here, right? We're, we have a dog, we're dog lovers, and so when we think of dogs in our culture, we think of them in positively. Uh, but in Paul's culture, people didn't have pets and, and people didn't have dogs as pets. Uh, dogs were considered to be kind of uh, verminous and mangy. Uh, they were invasive and they roamed the streets. They were bothersome. They were scavengers. And so when Paul calls these people dogs, he's not saying something really nice here. Uh, but what we learn is they are, are Judaizers. And what that means is that they were Jews who taught that responding uh, in faith to Jesus Christ was not enough for Gentile believers. And what we learn is this, that as Paul traveled throughout the Mediterranean world, he would go from city to city and he would uh, preach the gospel. Uh, People would be converted uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul would establish churches in all of these different cities. And then Paul would move on to another city. And what he would discover as he traveled is that after he left, these, these false teachers or these Judaizers would go to the churches in which he planted, and they would begin teaching all sorts of things. Essentially, they taught that Gentiles would need to become culturally Jewish in order to supplement their faith in Jesus Christ. And they would enter into these churches and they would tell the Gentiles that they would have to be circumcised. That's where that term mutilation of the flesh comes from. And they would have to engage in all of these Jewish rituals in order to supplement their faith in Jesus Christ. Essentially saying that Paul's message of faith really wasn't enough. And they had to add on all these sorts of religious rituals. They would have to supplement with works and religious practices. That's why Paul steps in and he says this, put no confidence in these fleshly works or in these religious practices that these teachers are talking about because confidence in the flesh at the end of the day is a dead end. 
And so Paul then goes on to say, if that was a thing, if confidence in the flesh is a thing, or, or confidence in our own religiosity is a way or is a part of the, a part of the gospel, then he, Paul, would have them all beat if that really was the rules of the game. And so Paul then goes on to talk about his own story in verses 4 through 6. He says this in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anybody else, if anybody else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I think one commentator puts it really nicely. He writes that in terms of Paul's birth, in terms of his nationality, his lineage, his upbringing, in terms of his obedience, in terms of his sincerity, in terms of his morality, he was the utmost figure in terms of religious accomplishments. And Paul even says this about his own resume. He says that he was zealously religious earlier on in his life. He was born uh, to the right parents. He was the model religious child. Uh, He grew up to be an incredibly esteemed religious figure. And in this culture, to be an esteemed religious figure meant that in many ways you sat on top of the the socioeconomic ladder of Paul's day. In other words, what Paul is saying is this, that he was so religious and he was so esteemed in his culture that by default, he was probably one of the most powerful and influential people in his culture. If culture is a ladder, he sat on top of it as one of the most successful people, both politically, religiously, and a person of great influence and power. He was a model religious figure. If you think about the the old uh, illustration that we joke about, if Paul were to die and to go to the heavenly gates, right, which I don't believe there's really heavenly gates with Peter standing there, but if it was and Paul was able to go and to plead his case on why he could get into heaven, he would have one of the most impressive religious resumes that anyone could write up. He had every reason to put all confidence in the world, in his religiosity. And yet, when he met Jesus Christ for real on the Damascus Road, he realized that all of it meant nothing. It meant nothing. Because for Paul, he realized that all of that religiosity, all of that good, righteous resume simply deluded him to the fact that he really stood before a holy God as one who was bankrupt spiritually. Friends, I think this is the real kicker in the story of the prodigal son. If you've ever read that story in Luke's gospel, it talks about one son who was wild and rebellious, but at the end of the day, recognized his own bankruptcy, came back to the father, and was ushered into the celebration. But we forget about the older brother, the dutiful, the religious older brother, who at the end of the day never enters into the celebration because he was confident in his flesh. He was confident in his own duty and his own religiosity. What Paul is saying here is that that isn't a way. 
confidence in our flesh, in our religiosity, it is not a way. It is a dead end. And so what he says is this, that instead, the only path to true life is not confidence in our own flesh or our own accomplishments or our own righteousness, that the path to true life is confidence in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, the key is to recognize that confidence in our flesh, in our works, or our religious deeds, that that confidence at the end of the day is empty. Because what the gospel tells us is that our sin is great and that it has condemned us before a holy God. And no amount of goodness, no amount of righteousness can ever overcome our debt due to sin. What the gospel tells us is that instead we need the gift of grace that is only ever made possible through the grace of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, I think the question Paul wants all of us to ask is this. Where does your confidence in life come from? Does it come from your religiosity, your religious performance, your uh, religious resume, or your religious reputation? Does it come from your career success or from your athletic accomplishments? Does it come from your financial security or reaching some sort of place financially that you want to be? Or maybe a better question to ask is this, what is it that makes you feel confident? What is it that makes you feel like you are worthwhile or succeeding in life? Is it your religion? Is it your career? Is it your reputation? Is it your resume? Is it your performance? Because I think what Paul is saying here is this. All of it doesn't, at the end of the day, mean what you think it does. Because none of it will make you right before God. None of it deals with your deepest need. Uh, The Protestant reformer Martin Luther uh, wrote this in his lecture uh, on Galatians, and I think it's a rich quote. He says this, For Paul, flesh means the highest righteousness, wisdom, worship, religion, understanding, and will of which the world is capable. Therefore, the monk is not justified by his order, nor the priest by the mass and the canonical hours, nor the philosopher by wisdom, nor the theologian by theology, nor the Turk by the Koran, nor the Jew by Moses. And I would add, nor the professional justified by his career success, nor the athlete justified by his performance, nor the investment banker by his portfolio, nor the politician by his or her election. In other words, Luther says, no matter how wise and righteous men may be, according to reason and the divine law, yet with all their works, merits, matches, righteousness, and acts of worship, they are not justified. We are only made right before God by placing our confidence in Christ. Now let's face it, some of us would like to do both, wouldn't we? 
We'd like to supplement our confidence in Christ with our confidence in the flesh. One commentator said this, reminded us of this, it is impossible to place one spiritual foot on the foundation of the flesh and one spiritual foot on the foundation of Christ. You see, what we place our, our, our confidence in becomes the foundation of our lives. And if our foundation is faulty, then our life is built on a faulty foundation. And so one final question is probably this. What are you most prone to boast about? Just think about your everyday conversations with other people. What are you most prone to boast about? Is it your career? Is it your kid's performance? Is it your possessions or maybe even your lavish vacations? Or when you get the chance to boast, do you boast in Christ and what he has done in and through and for you? Are you more passionate about speaking of his work of redemption than you are about your own accomplishments and your own resume? And so what Paul does here is he presents two ways to live. One is by the flesh, by the pattern of this world. The other is in Christ, the only true foundation. And so Paul concludes his comparison with what I think is a very powerful response. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In some ways, it's as if Paul is doing a a cost-benefit analysis here. On the one side, he has his former life, a life of religious respect and reputation, a life of superior education and cultural influence, a life of societal success. And then Paul says, I count it all as a loss. I count it all as rubbish because on the other side of the ledger is Jesus Christ. And a life with Christ is more valuable and worthwhile than anything that can be accomplished or accrued in this world. It isn't as if all those other things in the ledger are bad. Sure, they have the potential to distract us from our true condition, but there's really nothing inherently sinful about success and respect and reputation. Paul is just simply saying that Christ is infinitely more valuable than anything this world has to offer. He is infinitely more valuable than your highest aspiration or goal. Confidence in Christ is the only true foundation in life and in death and in all of eternity. And so don't miss the response recognizing the value of Christ did something for Paul. What it did was it it reoriented Paul's life and his priorities. He easily walked away from a life of prestige in order to embrace Christ, even though that meant embracing suffering and imprisonment. And so, friends, don't forget that we always make time for what we most value, Our priorities are always determined by what we value. We always allow our functional principles to inform the practice of our life. And so for Paul, 
Christ was of infinite worth, nothing compared to that. And so he simply pursued that which was most valuable to him. Because what you value is always what you place your confidence in. Remember the woman who came before Christ towards the end of his life, John chapter 12, and what did she do? She took her most valuable possession, a bottle of pure nard, a perfume of her day. She broke it and anointed Christ with it. That, that vial, that bottle of perfume was worth one year's worth of wage. It was her most valuable possession, but she, without even hesitation, broke it and anointed Christ with it because she valued Christ more than anything that this world had to offer. And so, friends, what are the fleshly things that you are tempted to put your confidence in? And what would happen if you considered all those things as loss or rubbish for the sake of Jesus Christ? Let's pray.